Hey, good morning, y'all. My name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors here on our staff at my church. Before we get started this morning, that last song, by the way, would y'all give it up for that worship team? Oh, my gosh. But just before we get started, one of the lines in that song, Jesus Christ, my living hope. And I just sitting there and I'm listening to that and I'm just like, like honestly in transparency, like every day I wake up and I am blown away that he saved me. I'm like, why would you care one iota about, I guess every day I am blown away that I'm saved. I don't know why I told you that. In total transparency, that's just the way that I feel. Um, We're going to talk through that living hope today. Uh, Anyway, we are... We're in uh, the second week where we're teaching through the book of Ruth. Started last week, and, and this week uh, we're going to continue. Next week uh, uh, we're going to be in chapter 3, and then the next week we'll finish this series. And I said last week that I really, really wanted y'all to read through the whole book of Ruth. It's four chapters. You can do it in 20 or 30 minutes. I'm not going to shame anybody by saying raise your hand if you didn't read through it. But I hope you did, and I hope you'll read through the whole book again this week. So, but last week, we were in chapter one, we really walked through, talked through the first 18 verses uh, of the book. This week, uh, well, last week, what we, one of the things that we learned was uh, that one of the main messages in this little short book is that God is at work in what we feel like is the worst of times, could be the worst of times, when, 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 when we feel like and think that he is uh, farthest away from us. We may even feel like he has turned against us. The truth is, he's at work. And I said last week, he has everything at his disposal. He created it all. He can use everything in whatever way he wants to. And he is always, always at work, working his plan for our benefit, and his plan and his will are always better than ours. Today, we're going to walk and, and teach through the the last few verses of chapter 1, and then be in chapter 2. And if you all remember from last week, uh, it, the book began with Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and they are, there's a famine in Israel and they, in Judah, and they, they, uh, they left, they abandoned their homeland, they went on a 40 or 50 mile trek up and around the Dead Sea, and they land in Moab, and it was, it was Elimelech and, and Naomi and their two sons, Malon, and Kilion, and, and uh, just about as soon as they got to Moab, uh, uh, Elimelech dies. The two sons marry Moabite women. Ten years later, those two, uh, those two sons died. The two women they married are Orpah and Ruth, and God broke the famine in Israel, and Orpah, uh, they're getting ready to leave and go back to Israel because God broke that famine, and Orpah goes back with her family, and Ruth clings to Naomi. She clings to Naomi, and they, they make that trek, or they begin to make that trek uh, back. Ruth, when she clung to Naomi, she pledged devotion to Naomi. She pledged devotion to Naomi's people. And more importantly, most importantly, she pledged devotion to Naomi's God. And so uh, we left this story with the two of them, with Naomi and Ruth, headed back to Bethlehem in Judah. So let's pick this up in verse 19 in chapter 1, and here's what the text says. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women 
the women in the town, the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Virtually nothing really is said of that 40 or 50 mile trek up and around the, the, the sea and back down into Bethlehem other than when they get there, the whole town is stirred and, and that the women said, can this really be Naomi? And that question tells me something about the change in the 10 years that she was in Moab, that her condition is much worse than when she left Judah to go to Moab. The pain, the sorrow, the, the, the grief, the regret, the poverty, the loneliness, everything that they went through in Moab had taken its toll on Naomi. Naomi had gone away prosperous and full, and she returned empty. Her sons, her husband, all of her prospects in her mind, all of her prospects were gone. The truth is life had beat Naomi up for about 10 years, and she was looking kind of rough. That's why those women said that. So in verse 20, she says, don't call me Naomi, she told him. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. And Naomi means my delight or pleasant, and Mara means bitter. And so Naomi is telling her friends, don't be calling me delightful. Don't be calling me delightful when I'm miserable. And then she goes on in verse 21. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So she does acknowledge that the Lord is who brought her back from Moab, but he brought her back empty. So she says, why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So she calls him the Almighty in verses 20 and 21 at the end of this chapter, and that is significant, and it's a, it's a name that is used in Genesis during the times where God promises to bless like just abundantly and, and beyond anything that we can imagine. And y'all, if you remember last week, we talked a little bit about the names of God and the way that uh, the Old Testament paints lots of different pictures of God, and, they, and, it, and it does that by using different names. Uh, last week we mentioned Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, and that was he was the provider for them in Ruth chapter, in, at the beginning of chapter 1. This term is El Shaddai. Most of y'all have probably heard that term. You've probably heard that name. You've probably heard the song El Shaddai. If I could sing, I'd sing it for you. But I can't. El Shaddai means God Almighty. God Almighty. And, and God Almighty is who uh, Ruth is, uh, that's who, excuse me, Naomi is referring to right here. Now, little did she know, little did Naomi know, that despite the emptiness that she felt, El Shaddai was preparing the way for her. He was preparing the way for her to experience the, the unreal fullness of his blessing. And the writer of, of this story hints at that in these final words of chapter 1 in verse 22. It says, so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite. And y'all, all throughout chapter 2 and 3, the writer says, Ruth, the Moabite, Ruth, the Moabite. He's constantly reminding us, the reader, she's a foreigner. Y'all watch what I'm going to do. She's a foreigner, she's a foreigner, she's a foreigner. So by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the har- a barley harvest was beginning. So the place of famine that she left, 10-ish years ago, was about to become the place of plenty that she returns to. And although Naomi didn't know it, she had no idea 
but God Almighty, El Shaddai, was about to replace all of this emptiness that she feels inside with fullness. And y'all, for most of us, Lord, I know for me, for most of us, part of the process when we're drawn towards Christ, part of the process when he, when he woos us and draws us into faith in him is kind of an awareness of the emptiness that we feel in our life without him. And it is often, maybe, maybe most of the time, that is something that God uses to prepare us for the discovery that Jesus came to give us life. And he came to give us life, a full life. In fact, he came to give us life totally in the fullest. And our, our, walk, our walk through this Christian uh, life, it, it needs to involve learning to trust the Lord as life's ebbs and flows come along. Doesn't, doesn't everybody's life kind of ebb and flow? You know, we, we, we wish our life, we get saved, and it's just a, a straight line. But you know what that straight line looks like if you zoom in on that straight line? It looks like that. Life ebbs and flows. And he wants us to trust them in the, in the valleys when you zoom in. In the valleys, he wants us to trust him. In the peaks, he wants us to thank him and trust him. And so those are coming, and we need to trust him in those we need to recognize that even in those valleys, even in the bitterness, when there is bitterness in life and it leaves us feeling maybe a little empty, all of that is still under his control. All of that is still under his sovereign hand and he stirs that up and he uses it for our good. You imagine, it's, it's 2018. If you imagine Naomi in an interview today, TV interview, 3,000 or so years after these events, and, and I don't know, Geraldo is interviewing Naomi. Geraldo Rivera is interviewing Naomi, and, and he says to her, Naomi, do you regret, do you regret uh, uh, these bitter experiences that you, that you went through in Moab? Are you angry with the Lord? What do you imagine Naomi would say? She's got 3,000 years of hindsight to look back on. I promise you, she would say, no, I don't regret anything the Lord has done. I regret my sin but I don't regret anything that the Lord has done. I can see now in this hindsight that it was God's transforming loving kindness in my life, and I'm so thankful that he used me and my family and all the events of, of my life in his plan to display his kindness to all of the world for all time. So, okay, so chapter 1 is, is kind of tough. It's kind of rough. But chapter 2 really ought to make me and you smile. But if you look at the text as Naomi and, and Ruth are landing in, uh, in, in Bethlehem, they don't feel like they had anything to smile about yet. But you remember, all the while God is working. All the while in the background he's doing stuff and he's moving all the chess pieces around. And so let's look at chapter, chapter 2. I want to run through three main points in chapter 2. And number one is that God's over the top. This is filling. The, everybody have a worship guide? If you don't have a worship guide, raise your hand. I want to get you one. And there's a few fill in the blanks. So number one, God's over the top grace is meticulously planned. It is meticulously planned. Uh, um, under the, the really the, the sovereign direction of the Holy Spirit, the human writer of Ruth 
and we really can call her a narrator, and I'm going to call her a her because I feel like and I believe that the best evidence is that the person that wrote Ruth was a female, and so I'm going to call her a her. Anyway, she provides us an an important little tidbit of background information in verse 1. It is almost like chapter 2 is a movie, and it's a saga, and, and the movie is starting, and it's the black screen, and before the movie really starts, there's this little blurb at the bottom of the screen to kind of give you a little information, background information as you move forward, and that background information is verse 1. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Verses 2 and 3 then speak of Ruth deciding to go off in the fields to try to gather up some crumbs. Verse 2 says, and Ruth the Moabite, he's reminding us again, she's a foreigner, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said, go ahead, my daughter. And so Naomi agrees to let Ruth do this, but she doesn't give her any direction whatsoever of where to go. Verse 3 says, so she went out, she, Ruth, went out, entered a field, and began to glean, which means to collect or to gather up, uh, behind the harvesters. Ruth was a foreigner. It would seem that she had absolutely no idea whose field was whose, and she knew nothing about Boaz. Boaz isn't even been introduced into the narrative yet. And she, so she didn't know anything about Boaz. She didn't know anything that he was a cousin of Elimelech. Verse 3 continues on. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out, we might say, as luck would have it, just so happened, as it turned out. But y'all, the Lord doesn't do luck. He doesn't do luck. That's not in his wheelhouse. That's not in his DNA. It's not the way he does things. There is no such thing as luck. The Lord doesn't do luck. Y'all know that, right? That was was a question. He doesn't do luck. His work is never hit or miss. It's never happenstance. It's never haphazard. He plans and he prearranges. The field that Ruth just so happened to land in Uh, as it turned out, the text, and there's really, it's almost sarcastic the way the narrator says that, as it turned out. And so that field that Ruth lands in uh, is the very field that the Lord had planned for Ruth to choose. Ruth chose that field. We have, this is a technical term, so y'all hold with me. All of us have a, we're a chooser. We all have a chooser. We choose things. And I know that's a biological term, but we have choosers that choose things. And there's a mystery there, and there's, and there's a lesson here that is a little beyond, kind of beyond our comprehension. It's a little bit beyond my comprehension, and that is that the Bible teaches throughout it that the Lord, that his sovereign plan incorporates the willing choices of men and women like me and you, and we're accountable for those choices. Think about that. It is hard to get your arms around. At least it is for me. God's plan for me from before my great-grandparents were even born, his plan for me includes my and incorporates my willing choices, and I'm accountable for those choices that I have. 
And so therein lies this truth that God is sovereign and I have free will. And that's tough to understand. I totally have free will, but God is sovereign. And those two things live at the very same time. And it's very clearly illustrated in the cross of Christ. And if we look at some of the church folks in Acts chapter 4 in verse 27, and they're praying, and they're talking about the events that had happened, which is the events of the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. They're talking about this, and they're praying about it. And here's what they say in Acts 4, 27 and 8. In fact, this has happened, all those events, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate the governor, the Gentiles and the people of Israel were all united against the Jews. They all chose. They had choosers. They chose to unite against Jesus. They chose to beat him. They chose to scourge him. They chose to flog him. They chose to nail him on a cross and kill him. They chose men chose to do that and they pray on we're all united against Jesus your because they're praying to the father your holy servant whom you anointed they chose to do that and the very next sentence is perplexing because it says but everything they did the beating the scourging the flogging the nailing him to a tree everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will it didn't surprise God it didn't surprise the father it was all done under, it was his plan and his will and his plan. Remember what Jesus said in the garden? We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. He said, Lord, let, he said, Father, let, take this cup from me. Take, because he knows what's going to happen. Take this cup from me, but not my will, your will. So, they, so, so he knew what was going on. Ruth chose this field. She chose it, but, but she was doing what the Lord in his power, in his will, had decided beforehand would happen. Wow. And that is, a, that is a tough truth to understand. And it's reinforced again in the start of verse 4. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Just then, Boaz arrived. Just then or behold, or can you believe his timing was just so good, it just happened to happen. The idea really is, can you believe that? There's a little sarcasm in that too. Remember, the narrator in this, in this story introduced us to Boaz in verse 1, and now he turns up. And all of this is it's designed to reveal that the Lord painstakingly planned what appears to us maybe to be coincidence. And this coincidence would, at the end of the day, result in an experience of over-the-top favor. It was true then, and it's true right now. The Lord's plan to lavish grace on Ruth and Naomi is part of an even greater plan, bigger plan, his bigger plan to lavish grace on men and women, uh, me and you, and all, of, all people in, the, in future generations through the Lord Jesus Christ. No part of that meticulous plan is just left to chance somehow. Nothing God ever does, ever does, comes down to, quote, luck. It was the Lord who, without her even knowing it, without Ruth knowing it, without Naomi knowing it, planned for Ruth to pick Boaz's field 
in which to what verse 2 says, to seek favor in the eyes of someone. Y'all, and then point two is this. God's over-the-top grace is channeled through Mr. Right. We're going to call him Mr. Right. Now we really meet Boaz. And he is Mr. Right in the sense that he was the perfect man for the Lord to use to channel his crazy kindness to Ruth and Naomi. Look at a few of his qualifications. He was a relative. Verse 1 says that he was from the clan of Elimelech. We think he was a cousin. And the massive significance of that's going to play itself out next week when we look at chapter 3. But as a relative of Naomi, he had a duty, he had a, a right and a responsibility to meet the needs of, of, of family members. Verse 1 also says he was a worthy man. He was a man of valor. He was a man of good standing. He was able to meet the needs of Ruth and Naomi. He was godly. He greets his workers with, with the Lord be with you. And to refer to the Lord was, was the normal kind of thing for Boaz to do. Even in the way that he talked to his employees, there was no disconnect with him between the sacred and the secular and the spiritual and the material. The Lord was always on his mind and his men that worked for him and the women that worked for him, they, they, they knew that. He was obedient. Verse 5 begins, Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman, he's talking about Ruth, who does that young woman belong to? And the overseers replied, she's the Moabite uh, who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. And the obedience, y'all, that I'm talking about is really, uh, this, this is an obedience to the law in Deuteronomy 24. Verse 19 of Deuteronomy says this, When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner. That's why we're reminded over and over, Ruth's the foreigner. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord, your God, may bless you in all the work of your hands. Knowing their boss, Boaz's men knew that he would agree to let a foreigner and a widow like Ruth glean in that field. He was welcoming. Boaz was welcoming. He's hospitable to foreigners. Verse 8 says, So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Remember, Ruth is expecting prejudice because she's a Moabite. She's expecting racism because she's a Moabite. Boaz gives her exactly what she doesn't expect. He even calls her my daughter in this verse. And then he provided for and he protects Ruth. Verse 9 says, Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told you the men, I've told my men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So he gave her protection. He told his men not to mess with her. He supplied refreshment. He told her she could drink from the, the water jars that his men had provided. And then he acknowledges Ruth's devotion. Verse 12, her devotion to Naomi. He knew, this is a small town, he knew what happened in, in Moab, and he knew that Ruth clung to Naomi. And then he prays for her. Verse 12, he's praying for her. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord 
the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And that is a direct reference to when Ruth said, your God to Naomi, your God will be my God. And then he was generous, even to Boaz, generous, even to the point of, like, overload. Verse 14 says, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted, she had some left over. So when it came to lunchtime, Boaz asked Ruth to come on in with them and break bread, come in and eat with him and his guys. And he shared bread, and he shared wine with her and she ate everything she wanted and she had some left over and verse 15 says as she got up to glean Boaz gave orders to his men let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her so he gave his guys instructions that went way beyond the law he told his men to to grab some sheaves, grab some stalks, and like go hide it out there so that she would find it. Don't let her see you doing it. Just set it out there so when she's uh, gleaning the edges that she'll find it. Look, guys, Boaz was Mr. Right for Ruth and Naomi. He was ideally suited. He was perfectly prepared by the Lord to be the channel of his lavish kindness to them. And I'm going to tell you what I noticed this week. I noticed that he foreshadows. He is almost like a type. He paints a picture of the Mr. Right, the total Mr. Right, through whom the Lord's lavish kindness comes to every one of us that take refuge under his wings. It's a beautiful way the narrator wrote that in Ruth, that we take refuge under the wings, the protective arms that when we take refuge and we sit in his lap, that he just holds, he just holds on to us. John 5.39, Jesus was talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And he said, these are the very scriptures. It's almost like you can see Jesus and he's got this pocket Old Testament, like in the back pocket of his jeans. And he says, y'all, these are the scriptures that testify about me. And y'all, that includes the book of Ruth. It includes the book of Ruth. And as Boab is described, we are given a, a perfect description of the Lord Jesus that came as a perfectly prepared and perfectly suited channel of the Lord's grace and the Lord's mercy and the Lord's love. Just look at some of, compare this as it pops up on the screen with, with um, this picture that we have of Boaz. He left heaven and became our relative. When he took on human flesh, he became our relative. As the God-man, he was a, a man of standing, a man of valor. He was a, a worthy man, and he had all of the resources of the Godhead at his disposal. And we need, in our needy state, we need those resources. In Jesus's, in his humanity, he was the godliest man that had ever lived. With him, there was no disconnect between the sacred and the secular. There's no disconnect between the spiritual and the material. And he was obedient. In his humanity, he lived a perfect life, a sinless life in total submission to the Father. I go back to that event in the garden when he said, not your will, but 
I mean, not my will, but, but your will. And he did that in a way that no one ever did before nor ever will do in the future. And he was welcoming. He, he, he's welcoming of all who take refuge in him. Wherever they're from, whatever they look like, whatever color their skin is. Y'all, there's only two types of people on the planet, lost sinners and saved sinners. There's not black, white, blue, green, purple, Moabite, Israeli, Arab. You know, what? there's not. Y'all understand that, don't you? Racism is completely anti-God. There are lost sinners and saved sinners, and that is it. And if you think heaven's going to be all white, you're probably not on the way there. I don't know if I should have said that or not. It just kind of, I kind of puked that out. But he, can you see how red my face is? Because I feel it. Look, he, he was sensitive. He deals with each person personally and individually and graciously. The widow, the prostitute, the stressed out parents, the tax collector, whoever, even his mama, as he hung dying on that cross, he was dealing with us with sensitivity. And through his death on the, cry, on the cross, he provides protection for us. And he's protecting us from the wrath that we deserve. It's what we deserve. That's why when I told you all I woke up this morning and I can't even believe that I'm saved, it is because that's not what I deserve. I deserve for him to thump me off the planet. And that protection that happened on that cross, that's what he is protecting me from. And he provides refreshment, living water, John, John calls it. He provides us living water. He provides us um, with his Holy Spirit if we are saved, living inside of us. And so again, he points us towards Boaz, points us towards Jesus. And big point number three is this. God's over-the-top grace is hope-giving for the future. All about what that last song that our worship team led us in. The end of chapter 2 shows us uh, that Naomi recognizes the Lord's kindness as she heard Ruth's account of the day. And it starts in verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she'd gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. And an ephah is like about 60% of a bushel, three-fifths of a bushel. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, her mother-in-law saw how much she'd gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she'd eaten enough. Remember it said she ate all she wanted. You know, God gives us more than we need. She ate all she wanted. She brought some home. And Naomi saw Ruth returning covered up with barley. Somebody had been absurdly generous to Ruth, and Naomi saw this. And in verse 19, Naomi, her mother-in-law, asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Who was it that was so generous to you? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place that she'd been working. She says to her, the, man that I, uh, the, uh, the name of the man that I've worked with today is Boaz, she said. And can't you hear Naomi say, if she was down here, just bless him. That's what she said. The Lord bless him. Naomi said that to her daughter-in-law. Despite all the bitter things, Naomi's thinking, all the bitter things that I've experienced, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And the he that's referred to there is not Boaz. The he that's referred to there, referred to there is God. And then she added, like, oh, I've just thought of something. There's a little sarcasm in that too. 
Naomi says, oh, 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 that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. He's a relative. He's a kinsman redeemer is really the word with a special God-given responsibility to help us. And in verse 21, then Ruth, Ruth the Moabite, again we're reminded she's a Moabite, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. And you can almost hear the excitement, the excitement like in, in Ruth's voice, like, like, mama, 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 he even said yada, yada, yada to me. So now maybe these wheels are turning a little bit in Naomi's uh, mind, maybe not wanting to jump ahead, but wondering where this whole little crossing of the paths might lead. And in verse 22, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in somebody else's field you might get harmed. So Ruth stayed close, which is the same word that is used in chapter 1 when it says Ruth clung to Naomi. This is the same word. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. All of chapter 2 is one day. It started in the morning and it ends right there. And what a difference a day can make. Evidence of the Lord's amazing grace on that one day gives Naomi a renewed hope for the future that just hours before she felt empty and bleak and and hopeless, it it is like, look, I'm not a golfer. I play about twice a year, and I'm so bad, but all it takes is one good shot in 18 holes to give you renewed hope. You go home to your wife, and you had 175 horrible shots, and you tell your wife about that one good shot for about an hour. It just take that just and so this one day gave Ruth and Naomi a lot of hope. It didn't change Naomi's circumstances. It didn't change what was true about her circumstances. She's still a widow. Both her boys had still died. She's still poor. She still has a life that is pretty dang hard. But she had a hope giving day. She had a hope giving experience of the Lord's kindness. And that gave her reason to believe that his anger may last for a moment. And it may. His anger may last for a month. It may last for a week. I don't know. It may last for a month. I know it's fleeting. But his favor lasts a lifetime and, and beyond. And I can only imagine in my little simple mind's eye, I can only imagine Naomi going to bed that night, snuggling into the bed with this big fat, nasty smile on her face. I I can only, and I want y'all to go to bed tonight with a big, fat smile on your face. A smile that's independent of circumstances. It's not a smile because you're happy. It's a smile because you have joy. Those are two different things. Joy is forever. Joy is in the Lord. Happiness is the ebbs and flows of life. And I want you to go to bed tonight with that big, fat, joyful smile on your face. And if you're already a Christian today, it's a smile that's thankful for God's visible and usually invisible work. You know, it's just gravy when we get to see it. Because most of the time, he's doing all these things in the background. That's why I said if Ruth could look back 3,000 years later and not be in the midst of the battle, she would look back and say, oh, that's what happened. Oh, that's why that happened. Oh, that's why we got hammered for 10 years in Moab. All of us are like that. 
Hindsight is 2020, and that is such a cliche thing to say, but it totally is. And if you are not a Christian today, I want to give you the opportunity. Y'all hear this. I want to give you the opportunity to to go to bed tonight with a Jesus-induced, hope-giving, future-assured, salvation-knowing, circumstance-independent, big, fat smile on your face. Can y'all all all say that together? You remember everything I said? It's a a hope-given, salvation-assuring, circumstance-completely-independent, big, fat smile on your face. And it's not complicated. Y'all, it really is not complicated. It's amazing, but it's not complicated. It is simply you confess with your mouth that He is the Lord. And you believe in your heart that he was raised three days later, that he died on that cross to buy you back, to redeem you. This whole book is about redemption. That is what it means. It's to purchase back something. And so that's all it is. I confess with my mouth that he is the Lord, and I believe in my heart that that all of that nailing to the cross and dying was for my sin. But you also... That's the belief and that's the confession. But let me tell you something. There is a repentance side of that coin. There's a repentance side. Because what did he save me from? What did he save me from? Sin. Sin. Plenty. Plenty. But Romans chapter 6 says grace abounds and it does abound. He's got way more than will ever be needed. But that doesn't mean I keep on sinning. That's what Romans chapter 6 is about. It's not like, oh, I'm saved, I have grace, let me just go keep doing what I'm doing. That is not, what, that is not the gospel. That is a false gospel. You, if you hear that on TV, it is a false gospel. Repentance is a component of it. And then he tells this woman, uh, the adulterous woman, he says to her, look, and she feels, you think Ruth's beat up? This woman is beat up. And he tells this woman, look, you can only you can see him with his arm around her. And he says, there's no condemnation here. There's no, and there, look, there's no condemnation in this building. There's no condemnation in me. I done told you that I deserve to get thumped off the planet. But he puts his arm around you. And he says, there's no condemnation, but go and sin no more. And in that language, it is not... Um, It's not, Ed, I expect you to be sinless for the rest of your life. Because none of us are. But it is a movement away from the sin and a movement towards Him. I had a friend of mine one time told me the difference between, one of the differences between a believer and an unbeliever is a believer takes God's side on sin and an unbeliever takes his own side. And I thought that's a, that's, a, that's a cool way to look at that. And so I beg you to get a right picture of the gospel and, and, and today rest under the wings of a loving Savior. And He can rescue us from the sin. And, it, and that rescuing is to free us. That freedom, it's a freedom not to live in that. It's not some hammering you over the head. That is real freedom. And as we grow and as, as our lives mature, 
there's less sin and less sin and more God and more God. Don't, don't think that I'm telling you to, to, that you have to be sinless because you're setting yourself up for a failure. And lots of people, when they get saved, they think life is going to be a bed of roses and I'm never going to sin anymore. And the, within an hour, they sin and they think, well, I must not be saved. That is not the gospel. Do you all get that? We need to focus. And it's, it's not even good news. It is great news that we can have freedom in that. And so here's what I tell you. If that happened to you today, you know what? Let's pray first. Bow your heads and close your eyes if you would, Lord. And if, and if that happened to you today, look, I just want you to pray out loud or pray to yourself. Lord, today is the day that I want to make you the leader and forgiver of my life. Today, Lord, is the day that I want to turn away from my sin. Y'all, t- today is that day. Today is the day that I want to rest in uh, in your loving arms. Today's the day that I want to crawl up in your lap, Lord, and call you Abba. And i got to have a relationship with you to do that. And so, Lord, today's the day I confess with my mouth that you are my Lord and Savior, and I believe in my heart that you died on that cross to save me and uh, walked right out of that grave alive. And so, Lord, I love you in Jesus' name. Um, so, look. If you have, we're going to take the, we got a few people that are taking the God plunge today. So if you have uh, a little one in the My Tots area or the My Kids area, I want to invite you to go get them. And you can go right now and get them and bring them back uh, while we're, we're, we're worshiping with this last song. Uh, and then we've got a couple of people that are taking the God plunge today. Um, as we're doing that, let's go ahead and... and, and and uh, we're going to go ahead and take up an offering right now. <laughs> the accountant would say that was dumb. I just sent a bunch of people out. <laughs> teasing, teasing. But this is a time where we give back to him what's really already his. And so I want to invite y'all, again, we want to be good stewards of the resources here. And I've said this before, our yardstick in this church is that every nickel that we spend on anything needs to result in somebody that doesn't know the Lord Come, that they would come to know Him. And that everybody in our, in our body that does know the Lord, that we're doing something to help more people get saved. It is all about the Lord. It is all about leading people to the foot of the cross and making them understand that they have the freedom to leave what they brought to the foot of that cross at the foot of the cross. So let me pray over our offering and, uh, and then we're going to worship and then we're gonna, some folks are going to get wet. Lord, we thank you so much for, for, for what you provide for us. And Lord, we, we are, it is a privilege, it is a privilege that you provide it for us. It is a privilege, Lord, that we get to give some back to you. It's all yours anyway. And Lord, we trust and we believe totally that you will use it, that you will guide us, that you will give us discernment and wisdom in the manner in which you want us to use your resources. And Lord, let us always be focused on you. Let us always be focused on bringing